We have a four-hour meeting. Good. Well, I prepared for six. So, what's again great? Great to see everybody, but Jack. Um, I know it. So, um, it is great to be here. I. I was reminiscing on how trying to figure out how old Asher and Hannah were when I first met them. And we ascertained about a year old for Asher, and, uh, but I think she was not even a year. Um, Mark and I really think that Asher was probably about seven months old. And to see her 19 and a woman now and uh, to see Hannah and Hannah leading worship is, is pretty remarkable. And the joy of still being being able to be connected here, to keep coming and seeing those generations rise up and take leadership, and and all of us will be dead, and hopefully they will take over. So whether you plan on it or not, we are headed there. My children tell me I'm mostly dead already. So this is, by the way, my family. That is my smoking hot wife of 35 years, the woman to my right. And that's my daughter, Amanda, that's hugging her, and my son, and my other daughter in all of their natural poses. So um, we didn't know how to do family real well, but we sure knew how to have fun real well, and we still do that today. And uh, my, my daughter, uh, I'll rehearse this, I know some of you have heard this before, but because we were in every nation, um, my kids grew up kind of global kids. They, we grew up kind of with the idea that we wanted them to think the world was small and not large. And so Ashley, the one on this side, uh, would go with me around the world. And her, her dominant thing that she would do when we would go to, these, to the cities of the world was scare me to death. That was her first and foremost thing. Um, she would disappear from the hotel and go out into the city streets and go into the impoverished areas with the kids from midnight two to three in the morning and um, needless to say uh, in a foreign country where crime and things and she's definitely blonde and she's definitely doesn't blend in if you know what I mean and she's bling and so going into the slums of Manila and to see the children is is quite remarkable. When she went down to Peru, she went to the gang where all the gangs hung out. That's where she wanted to go and minister. And so it didn't surprise us when she moved to Addis, Ethiopia for a couple of years and worked in the slums of Ethiopia with orphans. And the upshot of that is, is she married a, an African-American uh, that is quite remarkable. This is Spencer. He looks similar to me, handsome. Um, no body fat. He's, he, has, he has redefined for me what a six-pack on the stomach looks like. He really actually has one, and he's 30, and he trains professionally. Brandon Wright that plays for the Mavericks. He's his skill trainer in the offseason, and, and uh, that new dude with the Houston Rockets, Rob Covington, that was the, the, the Farm League Player of the Year that's sitting on the Rockets bench during the thing. He trains Rob. He's trained him since his college years. And so he's, he's a, he trains professional basketball players. He has an organization, but his passion are children. And 
children in the margins. And so he has 200 kids in his basketball camps. And they just gave birth to a stunning, drop-dead gorgeous baby. And immediately, yes, this is baby Kay right here. Um, she's throwing me the OK sign over there. And you'll notice how long her fingers are. Spencer and his dad, his dad was a prolific basketball player. And they have slightly abnormal large hands to say it to put to, Spencer can palm the ball he's only 6-1 he can do a 360 behind the back slam dunk and he's 30 shoot the lights out at the three they're just athletes the whole family Kaysen's fingers are as big as mine I mean she has the longest fingers of a baby I have ever seen and so when she was birthed what do you think Papa said not Oh, such nice piano playing hands. Oh, no, it was she can palm already. So I want you to know we have every basketball that you can buy for a baby she has, every one. And so this is Kaysen, and my daughter Ashley got pregnant less than 45 days after she had Kaysen. Again. Two babies in one year, and they're not twins. And uh, they just adopted a girl from Addis, Ethiopia. And so they are with three children. They've been married a year. And this is Anaya. She's our new Ethiopian, stunning, drop-dead gorgeous uh, orphan. Her mama dropped dead in, in Addis when, when Ashley was there. And they, they called my daughter. And she, she had an eight-bedroom home that she rented. It was very inexpensive there. And it was full of orphan boys, and they had to, like, detoxify them before they could get them in the boarding schools. And they have fungus and giardia and typhoid and tuberculosis. And so she had to get all that out of them before they would take them. And, and Anaya's mama dropped dead and left her an orphan. And they called and wanted Ashley to take her. And so Ashley was up with her every night, crying, um, holding her. And, and so eventually... Miss Anaya called her mama. Well, it was over. And so uh, she, we just got her four weeks ago. And so she's an amazing young lady, speaks, um, speaks uh, not fluent English, but she definitely has a command on English, and she's already in the second grade in four weeks. And so she's doing amazing. But that's one family. And then my daughter on the other side married a Latino bodybuilder. They, they married athletes much like me. Rick's biceps are the size of my waist, so he's built very similar to me, and my waist is the size of his bicep. And um, these kids, this is, so they gave birth to um, Mocha here is Hannah, in the, or Taylor in the middle, the girl with the hat on. She's the Mocha baby. Uh, the boy's a latte kid. He looks latte. That's Devin. And then they adopted these two from Ethiopia. They, too, were unadoptable orphans, brother and sister, Hannah and Abene. And so that's that family. And so we've got brown, white, mocha, latte, black, black in that family. And so it gets rather confusing when we go into a restaurant, as you might think, as a family. And then my son, because every continent was taken except Asia, he just married an Asian this is Kyra, and she was born and raised in Manila, Philippines. And so our grandkids, we have penguins left or the Antarctic. We have some Maoris maybe from the South Pacific. We don't know 
what other ethnicities we have, but my kids told me it's simply because I was a bad gene pool, and they wanted to change the skin tones and the dance moves and, and the IQ. And so this pretty much did it. So when we walk into a restaurant, nobody knows what just happened. And so, but um, when you come to our house, everyone knows little Anaya picks up the globe and spins it, and, and she points to Addis, Ethiopia, and I lived here, and we moved here, and little Hannah that was 10 months old calls it Opiopia, and then she laughs and says she doesn't speak the language, um, but she spins the globe, and she can find countries, and we're raising them to believe that the world is a small place, and hopefully someday they'll go back to their countries and help bring change there. But that is my family, and the reason I say that is because um, my wife and I are insanely in love. We've been married 35 years. We're best friends. Um, we, we just got back from necking in Miami for two days. And so necking changes at our age. Uh, you fog up the windows by breathing on them. It's the easiest way to do that. So... Anyhow, that's my lovely wife. And I know you're thinking, the heck did you have him stand up there for? I just wanted you to know my family. Um, We are definitely a motley group. Take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Judges. That's as Beyonce would say, to the left, to the left in your Bible. That is in the Old Testament. And... um, I know Rich, Pastor Rich has been talking about um, the idea of leading. Everybody say lead. Lead. And so I want to talk about the, the idea of being a leader. Now, I hate to use that word because when you talk about leading in any group of people, that typically conjures up the perfect man, perfect woman syndrome in your mind. If I say leader, how many of you think of a less than perfect person coming to your brain? You always have this iconic view of what it is to be a leader, almost an airbrushed view, many times perhaps a false view of what that means. The second thing I find when I say the word leader is that It sounds very corporate. It sounds like leader, like what? So are you going to give us a corporate message on leadership? No. Uh, I want to give you a context for what I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about how God changes the impossible depravity that lies in a society and how he's always changed it. He's done it from day one. And in theology, that I'm sure you're real excited for me to even use the term, there's cause and there's secondary cause. Everything that God does, how many of you know, is causal. He's sovereign. He causes everything to happen. How many of you know by the time you thought about making Jesus your Lord, he had already showed up and wooed you to him? It wasn't that you 
got warm and fuzzy and thought about God. No, he loved you. And while you were yet a hud out sinner, he came after you like a bird dog. You didn't go after him. By the time you thought God thoughts, he was already on the scene because he is the cause of everything. He's the cause of everything. In theological circles, I'm known as a classic neo-Calvinist. That means I'm charismatic, and that means I'm a classic Calvinist, not a hyper-Calvinist. Now, I'm talking to you like leaders, so this is important to set a context so that you don't think I'm importing some corporate idea to what we're about to talk about. This is deeply missiological. This is deeply biblical, what we're about to talk about. This comes from the Bible, not from the marketplace. And so when you read your Bible, God is the cause of all things good. He is the cause. Now there's a secondary cause, and that's everything that humans do. Everything that humans do. And so I believe God chooses those who are going to be saved. Now, before you get mad at me, uh, if you're an Arminian, I love Arminians, and I think you're right too, and I think we need you. Now, see, a classic Calvinist can say that, and they're not in tension. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says, God chooses the lost, but he tells you, on this side of the conversion door, it says, choose. So you as the human, the secondary cause, you choose God. Then once you walk through doors, salvation's door, you turn around and it says chosen. That's how he deals with the tension of cause and secondary cause. Okay? When you become a lawless Christian, what you have done is eliminated secondary cause and says it doesn't matter what I do because God does everything and therefore I can do anything I want to do because it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, that doesn't wash in theology. And therefore, I can become lawless and I can live a sinful life because his grace is sufficient to cover. And so what I'm talking about is God wants to change the depravity that lies in every culture. He wants to reach lost people. But it's interesting, he never does that unless someone preaches the gospel. There is no election where the gospel is not preached. So the tension is this. Darkness never leaves a culture unless the gospel is preached. And yet God is causing all things to happen. Now, the great classic study is the entire book of Judges in the Old Testament. The Israelites, when they turned pagan, they went real pagan. I mean, Israel would turn their back on God and it's shocking to me how fast they would become godless. And so when you crack open the book of Judges, you find it lies between two massively historical bookends in the book of Judges. Joshua just dies and that's where the book of Judges begins. And the frightening introduction to the book of Judges is this. Joshua died and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of God. The man of God died 
and the nation went pagan frighteningly fast. It went dark. And because God is faithful, and how many of you are glad he disciplines those whom he loves? How many of you have ever been on the receiving end of the disciplining love of Jesus Christ? He's a faithful father. And because he loves Israel, he raises up a nation to take them captive. Essentially, I think it's going, you want to be a pagan? I'm going to raise up some pagans to really let you get your full bully belly fill of pagan. I'm going to get guys that have PhDs in pagan that have never even known me. They will show you depravity like you have never seen before. And that depravity will chew you up and spit you out the other side in divorce and in abused children and economic ruin and all the things that come with the psychological damage of you wanting depravity, okay, nation of Israel. You want to go dark, I'll take you to dark real fast. And he would raise up a nation. And they would take Israel captive. Now, it's in that darkness. And you have to be real careful when you read and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. You can't gloss over that. It takes a moment to think of what that means. It means evil. Every single portion and fabric of evil. And every destructive thing that comes with what evil means, that's what happened to them. It became dark and depraved. Dark and depraved. Now, if you were God for a day and you wanted to change that and you were the great cause of everything, what would you do? Well, Judges says what God did. He began to look for a person. And he would find one. And he would say, tag, you're it. You to judge. And he would raise up a judge. And the judge had two things that they particularly had to do. They had to become the moral conscience of the nation and lead them back to God. And they had to become a military catalyst or a stinking military genius like Donna a killing machine. Unless <laughs> you know she's into logistics. I said, well, what does that mean? She does war games, killing people. So the second thing, second thing a judge had to do was get Israel free from the nation that captive, captured them. So they had to be the military catalyst and the moral conscience of the nation. Every judge had to do that. Now, you look across the, the broad scope of judges and the guys that God tagged were killing machines. Take Samson. Even though Gideon was a coward and hiding in a hole, when he got a little courage, he was a killing machine. 
My favorite was the one right before Deborah took over, Ehud. Now, I want you to think about this dude. He was the judge. And Ehud is so big and bad that when he's tagged the judge and he says, I'm it, and he's to overthrow the government, this is what the stupid plan he comes up with. It's stupid. It's suicide. He decides he's going to go kill the king himself. So he takes a sword and tapes it to the inside of his thigh. Walks into the White House, tells the guards he wants to go in and speak to the president in the Oval Office. This is actually what it's saying. It would be our equivalent. He goes into the Oval Office, tells the guards, you know, stand up, shuts the door, pulls the knife out, kills the king, kills him in the Oval Office with killers out the door. He comes and shuts the door and says he's relieving himself. Locks the door behind him. You read it. It's in there. He's relieving himself and walks out of the palace. And hours later, they find their king dead and Israel overthrows him. I don't know what Marvel comic superhero is going to be in the future. But Ehud wouldn't be a bad dude to put on that list. <laughs> he was a killing machine. Now, when Ehud died, chapter 4, verse 1, the cycle repeated itself. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. God raised up the Canaanites. Now, if you want to be vile, be a Canaanite. Raised up the Canaanites. So Jabin had this killing machine in Sisera, the Canaanite general, and they took Israel captive. And for a couple decades, they had them in their grip. And the children of Israel did what they always did, and every Christian that goes through the cycle they cried out to God because he's the great God of the fire escape. <laughs> Jesus, help me. I will never not do what you say if you will help me out of this. He helps you out. Jesus, who? And then you fall. Jesus, help. But thank God he's faithful. His grace is staggering. And so, so you're... So Ehud dies, they're taken captive. Now God is looking to a pagan Israelite community to choose someone. Now this is the head-twisting two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, because he breaks all the rules. He picks Deborah. Deborah. Like, you got to be kidding me, Deborah. Now, now, what rules did he break to pick Deborah? Well, he, he certainly must have been smoking something. Maybe God moved to Colorado for a day. But something happened because he chose a woman. And he chose the wrong kind of a woman. Now, if he would have chose Katniss Everdeen, how many of you think he would have been, okay, that's fine? Or G.I. Jane? Or maybe 
Zeta warrior princess kind of a Deborah. But he didn't. The word Deborah, and you learn much about Deborah by what her name means. It means honeybee. Now, last time I checked, there's no militaries named honeybees. There's no superheroes named honeybee. How many of you, if I say honeybee, you get frightened? No, no. So Deborah was a diminutive, typical, tiny, kind Jewish woman with one superpower. She was a prophetess. Now, that helps for the moral conscience part. How many of you know that helps? Deborah's the only judge that nothing bad is said about. So she must have been an unbelievably godly woman. But she is a head twister. You're going, you've got to be kidding me, God. You've got to lead these people out. And the Canaanites, Jabed, had 900 chariots and 50,000 well-armed troops. And honeybee is going to lead us? You've got to be kidding me. Now, lessons on how God turns depravity around in a culture. And lessons on leading And the first lesson is this. God chooses unlikely people so many times to lead. They don't fit the pedigree. Maybe not not the right college. Maybe not the right ethnicity. Maybe the not right gender. But let's read the story of Deborah. Judges chapter 4. We're going to start there in verse 4. And we're going to go 4 through 11. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summons Barak, the son of Abinoam. Now, this is the man that should have been chosen to be the judge. Barak means lightning. Now, how many of you, if you were going to go to a fight, would choose lightning over honeybee? How many of you wouldn't even think about going with honeybee? You would choose lightning any day over honeybee. Barak was a killing machine. In fact, Deborah couldn't speak to the nation and they rally, but Barak could. Conspicuously, he was not chosen. For some odd reason, a woman was chosen. And the wrong kind of a woman was chosen. And that's important. Whenever something deviates huge in the Bible, pause and think about it. Continues, it says, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I'll give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go, I am not going to go, or I ain't going in Tennessee. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera 
into the hand of a woman. Now, let's push pause and let's talk about this staggering thing. God chooses unlikely people so many times to lead for so many reasons. Now, this is a a bizarre setup. Um, Barak goes, Barak goes, she, she comes up to him and I'm sure it was a bend down. No, a little further. Grabs him. Speaking to lightning. It, now notice it says two or three sentences about her superpower. The rest of the two chapters is about something she has no giftedness in at all. Barely mentions that she's a prophet. The focus has nothing to do with prophet power in her. In fact, none of it. It's a casual mention. Now, why did God choose Deborah? The reason he chose Deborah was because they were all pagan. They didn't believe in God. They might have believed in him, but not a God that could deliver them. And so Barak, she gets in his face and didn't she say, she goes, you know, you're supposed to take 10,000 men. He knew, but he wasn't. He said no to God. Many times the reason he chooses unlikely leaders is because they just do one thing that no one else did. And that's they just say yes and believe God. I remember coming here. I was recounting it to the elders. I remember coming here and sitting down at the radio station, getting a context for Abilene, and I cast my vision, and the head of, what's the radio station called, Mark, again? KGNZ, and he was a great guy. He was actually a great guy, and he asked me the the most piercing question I've ever been asked as a pastor. He goes, Kevin, why would you want to come to Abilene to plant a church? There's already enough churches in Abilene. Froze me dead in my tracks dead in my tracks. And I said, I don't know. I never thought of that before. And I got in my car and it haunted me. And this is very important for you to get. You see, I think there was a distance between the depravity of Abilene and the reality of what that was the impossible darkness that lies in every city of the world. And once you lose sight of that, why plant more? Well, the math is this. If you're going to reach any city in North America, you divide the population by 100 people, and that's how many churches you need. Abilene's 120,000. You need 12,000 churches in Abilene to reach Abilene. Now, you don't have 400. If you go to Europe with me, you take the population and divide it by 20. And it's overwhelming. So I want you to think with me for a moment. God has to find leaders that will say yes. 
And you may be the big and the bad and the lightning, but if you say no, he will go to somebody else that will say yes. Even the diminutive prophetess that he barely mentions her superpower because she did one thing. She said yes to him. And he said to her, I need you to go get in the face of lightning and tell him to do what I said. She knew she didn't have to overthrow them. She knew her job was to get into one man's face and to tell him to do what he already knew God was telling him to do. And it took a little Jewish woman, I think much like Donna, scary Jewish woman. (laughs) Scary in your face, Jewish woman. And I mean, it took a woman to get in this man's face. Now, I want you to think about this because this is the crux of the story. He looks back at her and he goes, listen, Unless you go with me, I'm not going to go. Now, I want you to think about that. Like, what is one 90-pound Jewish woman going to offer on the battlefield? Like, Barack is really going to feel safe now. Whoa, whoa, Deborah on a horse, scary. Whoa, no, not at all, none of that. In fact, in the fifth chapter, remember when you read this, when you read this story, the first Chapter 4 is the prose, chapter 5 is the poetry. She writes a song, and in that song, fills in a lot of the detail. And in the song, she said this, Amongst 40,000 in Israel, there wasn't sword nor spear. In other words, the Canaanites did not let them arm themselves. So not only were the odds 10,000 to 50,000, they were 10,000 with water pistols to 50,000 well-armed, well-trained, 900 chariots. It was a slaughter. Barak said no because he was a pragmatist. He was not going, he was not a chicken. He was not into suicide of 10,000 men. Deborah knew when she got in his face, it was going to take an abject miracle. Barak was a pragmatist and she just believed God. Radical implications for leadership. You may not be all that, but I promise you, if you say yes to God and have faith, you got more than most people will ever have. Because last time I checked, everything he's ever asked me to do, I was undereducated. I was under IQ'd. I didn't have the right looks. I don't have the right pedigree. But I did say yes, and it was impossible, and he split the sky. Because all he wants is your secondary cause. Because he's the great creator of everything that really works. It's okay, God, but if you don't show up, you know we dead. And he goes, yeah, I got him right where I want to. And you're going, well, glad you think that. <laughs> now, so Deborah gets in his face. And she said yes to God. She gets in Barak's face. And he goes, unless you go, I'm not going to. Now, what is, what, is, what is the scene there? This is the scene. He's going, okay, Deborah, you big bad prophetess, Deborah, with your big bad God. You want us to be murdered? Come with us. 
you die with us. Uh, I'm not talking about saying yes to God and believing God for easy things. Last time I checked in Abilene, all the easy things have already been done. All the things that are left are horribly dark, massively difficult, child abuse, child molesting, immorality, unethical work in the marketplace. The entire economy of the world collapsed because of a lack of ethics in boardrooms. The entire economy. Rewind and put a believer in there. I would have said no. We're not going to lend people money that can't pay for it in seven years, knowing that they're going to be kicked out, and then there will be a reckoning day. Bundling bad loans with good loans and selling them across the globe. Encumbering the globe with it, and then the meltdown. You see, nothing, nothing in any society that is left is easy. Nothing. It's, it's for Abilene to change. It's going to take a miracle. But God is sitting there saying, I need someone that's going to say yes. And that, that is going to believe me because I'm not talking about cheap wins. It might be your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. I remember the day here that this entire second row was lesbians. The whole second row. Jack and Nora remember. Mark and Ruth remember. And sitting down listening to their lives. You, you go, good grief. <laughs> to, to change a person like that. And Abilene is full of that. I live in the plastic culture of Nash Vegas. And so you drive to Nash Vegas, you you can see things here. You can't see anything there because it's all hidden and it's horrible. I'm on planes. I live on planes. You know, you fly too much when they call you by your first name and they, you get the same seat every time. And, and, and you know, people that, that work in London because you're always flying with them and you're on all the things and, and the horror of knowing a man is cheating on his wife because you sit there and watch and you know the man and you know that's not his wife. And the, the millions and millions of dollars that are going to be involved in divorce and you know their kids and you know the damage, and you know that they're Christians, and they're famous, and they're going to cause another scandal, and you just, you look at the darkness that's pervasive everywhere, and when, when God tags you to say yes, I just want you to know, he fakes us out so many times, and fakes us into thinking it's just getting in one man's face. Till the volley is, put your life on me. You ride out with me. 
See how big and bad your God is. The reason he didn't care about the glory is because there was no glory to be gotten. How many of you think glory is this was the worst move of any general in history as they marched out to a slaughter armed with water pistols against one of the greatest armies in the world. Now, how many of you think there's a lot of glory in that? He didn't, there was no glory to be gotten. And when he said, the glory is going to go to a woman, he goes, oh, great. Yeah, let him have it. And they ride out. Now, in this church, you're a leader. That presupposes that you've said yes. And you've said yes to a lot of bad things, tough things. Maybe it's your neighbor saying yes to Jesus about engaging them, including them in your life and reaching them for Jesus Christ. Maybe it's your campus, maybe whatever it is, but it is critical and Not only did we lose it up there, but my phone just went. So you see, God calls the unlikely to lead. And many of the reason he chooses you because you're not big and bad. He doesn't choose you for what you've got. He chooses you for what you say and what you believe. He chooses you because of what he's got inside of you. He chooses you because your job is to say yes and believe. All of those things. So the list of what you don't got, he could add to that list. Things that you don't even know you don't got. But that's why he does it. It continues and it says, um, sorry, I pontificated there. Where did I leave off? Oh, and the Lord will sell Sisera. Let me find that on here. And the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 unarmed men. Guys, this guy was a stud. He says, come and join the suicide mission. And they go, okay. And they come. He should have been the judge. He should have been. And so they go out and 10,000 men went up with his Heels and Deborah went up with them. And now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. This guy was a traitor. Kenab was, he he was a traitor. He He was a descendant of Moses and should have been on Israel's side. Well, he had defected and he was on the side of the, the Canaanites. And so the story shifts to them. And it says, um, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Imagine Barak going, yeah, right, given Sisera into our hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Now, this is where it begins to change. She's looking at him and saying, listen, I know this is a suicide deal. God has to go before us. And he's going to go before us. Look at me, Barak. He is going to go before us. Get it. Your job as a leader, when you tackle the impossible, is to get in the face of people and look at them and go, we know this is impossible. We know we're a tiny, huddled up group of 300 people over here in this side of town 
And we can do this. But we can do it because we say yes and we believe and we have faith and Jesus is our Lord and we're going to say yes to that. We may be a little honeybee, but boy, can we sure stir up a lot of dust. Kingdom dust. And this church was born in that. It was born in that. And that's your job, is to look at people and, and encourage them in the Lord. And she says, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. And the Lord routed Sisera. And the Lord routed Sisera. And all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot, odd, and fled away on foot. Now, if you're running from someone wanting to kill you and you're driving a Maserati, how many of you would stop and get out and start running? Isn't that like freaky odd? You're thinking like, was he an idiot? Or maybe he went into the woods and camouflage or something that he could No, 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 no. We'll talk about that in a little while. That's very critical. And, and so he gets out like an idiot and he runs. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heth. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. And not a man was left, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Enter second woman with a very special set of super skills. The wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. In fact, she was coming on to him, scholars say. She was coming on to him. It's kind of hidden in this, but that's what, what she was saying. Turn aside, turn aside, my Lord, uh, do not be afraid. So she turned aside to her and went in the tent. She covered him with a rug and, and he said to her, give me some water. And she gave him a sleeping pill, which was milk. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone in here? Lie and say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. Never underestimate the power of a woman with a hammer and a tent peg. And took a hammer in her hand. I mean, you never want to mess with a Bedouin tent woman. They can drive a stake through concrete. They've done it so much. And so she takes a hammer and it says, Then she went in softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Next thing. Uh, move to the next thing. You see, this was remarkable to me because she gets into the face of Barak. Barak catalyzes the 10,000 men. And they lead. And victory is secured. Now, God challenges likely leaders like this by unlikely leaders saying yes. It happens everywhere, all over the world, all the time. Those who have it all together, and how many of you know this man has it all together? Typically when you say leader, this is what men think of, and women, it would be an airbrushed woman up there. 
Deborah was none of that. But because she got in Barak's face, she catalyzed people that should have been leading but had said no. And never underestimate the power in leading that when you say yes, believe me, God knows you need someone bigger and badder than you to help you. Listen to what it says in Judges 5, 14 and 15. After she got in Barak's face and he summons, listen to what happened when they came. It says, from Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley following you. This is the song she's singing. Benjamin with your kinsmen from Makir marched down the commanders. Listen, there were commanders, trained military commanders commanding nothing. It says, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff, lieutenanting nothing. And princes, princessing nothing. These are gigantic leaders. And they were doing nothing. You look across a culture. And I don't know if you're like me. But I know some people that say, They're Christians that sit in seats of power. They look like our gentlemen up there and they do nothing. All it takes is one person to say yes. And you watch what happens to people that should be leading. Ultimately, they come out of the woodwork. I was asked to lead this organization back years ago that, and I'm not at in any way, shape, or form being humble. Um, I was not qualified. I didn't even want to. I was asked to lead, the, to take over a corporation that um, was the top in the world in its field. And um, I was not educated. I was not, I couldn't speak the language I needed to speak. I didn't understand the culture. It was a, the staff was in another state. It was nearly bankrupt. Sure, why shouldn't I do that? And I knew I wasn't supposed to be the one that did this. I knew there was a guy who was gigantically capable that was in the mix that kept saying no. No. He said no longer than I said no. Finally, I said yes, but I put all these stipulations because I actually wanted to trick them. My yes was just a no, but I was going to make it impossible for them to meet all my conditions. See, because I'm a great at manipulation. And so I said, well, the only way I'll do this is if you shut down your staff and move them all to Midland. Well, last time I checked, nobody wants to move from anywhere to Midland. And when I say, except if you're going to get married... And I'm still mad because they ought to move to Abilene. Um, and, and how many amens can I get on that? Okay, thus saith the Lord. Um, and so, so I'll show you that I said yes, 
But I put all these conditions. I said, you got to shut down operations. You got to move all your staff here. Secondly, you got to shut the corporation down and do a new corporation that's thousands of dollars and they're almost bankrupt. See, I thought that single one would get the, my yes to be turned into a no. See how sneaky I am? And they said yes to everything. And so I walked in one day and the whole staff had moved there and set up and we were in full operation. And I have a superpower of being able to raise a lot of money. I have a lot of wealthy friends. And if you give me something worth giving to, because I couldn't create that, then I can get you money. And I did. I bankrolled them real well and didn't particularly still care. I didn't even understand what they were doing. But I'm the CEO. And I'm flying around and people all over the country are going, all over the world are going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're, you're him. You're like, I'm an expert. I just thank God no one ever asked me a question. No one. Because I would have done the cliche deal of that's so stupid, you've got to call my secretary. I don't answer any questions that are that beneath me. Um, and so th- this is a true story. In the 30-year history, I'm a blip on a screen of a year and a half. That's all I am. And I bankrolled him. And that I can do in my sleep. But it was tearing me up one side and down the other. I had to travel 180 days in one year. And I couldn't continue to do that. And so I sat down with him and said, guys, you're bankrolled for years to come. And I I can't continue to do this. And the guy that should have said yes in the first place said yes. He said yes. He was a genius. His father is a billionaire. He's in the country that we worked in. He speaks the language, he understands the culture, he knows the people, and he is an expert. And he said yes. And afterwards, scratching my head, thinking, what in the heck was that about God? I came to find out he had one horrible deficit, and that is he didn't know how to raise any money, and he was frightened. When you say yes and you're brave enough to walk out and take steps of faith, you stand back and watch what happens. Last year, this organization trained 136,000 underground house church pastors in theology in China. Just China. And when they... Call through the annals of history. My name won't even be mentioned. Thank God. (laughs) Say yes. Let's say yes. Say it a little louder. Turn to your neighbor and say, I did not hear you. Just say yes. The next lesson, I think, and I think this is important for every leader of anything. How, How many of you know in a marriage that's dark? God wants one of the believers to say yes. He'd love for two of them. But many times it's one and then the other one someday steps up to the plate. Um, 
There's something bad that happens, though. Next slide. Not all will help. See this guy chilling? Um, when you decide to lead, I know all of us think, well, when I do it, I know no one followed, but they've never had anyone like me before. So when I say yes, everybody is going to lead. Now, when I first took this deal, I went to all my normal bazillionaires, and they wrote no checks. Summarily wrote no checks. So I had to go to new places. It's just I'm very, very good at that. And I did, but I was so perplexed. Why? When you decide to lead and you say yes, don't get discouraged because everybody's not following you. Do not get discouraged if people don't follow you. It's never as easy as you think it is. And there's never going to be as many people that come to your aid as you think there are. It's never going to be quite like that. It's always harder and darker. And God many times blinds you to that because you would say no. So listen to what happened. Judges 5.15. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar the faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. But look at this. This is shocking. Amongst the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Why did you sit still amongst the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? In other words, the shepherd's pipes playing Bach and Beethoven and Chopin and Bavaldi. Why did you sit around thinking amongst the clans of Reuben there was great searching of heart? The entire tribe of Reuben sat around and this is what they were doing. War. Hmm. We don't have any weapons. Don't they know we don't have any weapons? How many of you love the people that are so negative, they always help point out the thing that is so obvious that everybody already knew it and never said it because it's so obvious? Oh, they sat around. They literally sat around, he says, listening to the shepherd pipes play, thinking and going deep in the... They're the... They're the no, I'm just going to sit here and think about, hmm, war. And they never listed, lifted a finger. The entire tribe of Reuben. Deborah rebukes them and leads. Great lesson. Great lesson as a leader. Never let people that aren't going to do it. And the Reubenites they got all the blessings of the freedom of being set free and never lifted a finger. Listen to this. It says, it says of Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. That's all that it says. In other words, the big bad Jordan River. If you've ever been there, if it's not flood stage, you can get across in about 0.10 seconds. I've been to the Jordan. It's like a creek. You can get across the Jordan easy. And it's interesting that she points out, yeah, they just, people that will make up every reason in the world they can't do something. Just rebuke them and lead. Just lead. So there's an op, just lead. They're not going to help you. And it says, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Dan stayed with the ships. The Danites were the great traders. They had all the Phoenician trade tied up. 
They're just the people that are encumbered with all the work and they're not going to take a day off to help you do a thing. Just rebuke them and lead. Are you getting the drift here? You see why Deborah included this to give us forever an image and a picture. We got our freedom and not everyone was involved in it. And then Asher, not you Asher if you're here, the other Asher, sat still at the coast by the sea staying by his landings. I think they were just sun tanning. Um, The next slide, and I'll end on this. When you lead, God intervenes. When you, now, remember, remember back, meanwhile, back at the chariot, Sisera gets out and runs. Let, let's see what happened. It says, Lord, when you went out from Sire, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Wow. Now, think about this for a minute. God sent rain. Now, he told him to go to the Kidron Valley, which is flat, and that's the last place you want to fight chariots, which is why Barak thought, suicide mission, you want us to go into flat land, they have chariots, you're an idiot, God. Um, Second, we have no weapons, so this is really a double suicide mission, unless you make mud. Because if you make mud, chariots get stuck, and you've just eliminated 900 chariots. God always, always has to do a miracle. It always takes mud. It always takes stinking mud. And God is the God of mud. And he shut the chariots down in a moment. He wants you to say yes And when you say yes, people that should be leading, many of them will come out of the woodwork. But a lot of people are not going to follow you. And yes, it always takes a miracle. But he's into making miracles. Last one, just flip to the last one. We don't need to go to the... When godly godly leaders give God the glory, uh, Judges 5.2, my favorite thing. uh, She says... That leaders took the lead in Israel. I go, leaders took the lead. Deborah, they weren't taking the lead. Leaders took the lead in Israel. The people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. She gave all the glory to God. Isn't it amazing? She was giving those people the credit and God the glory. She said they willingly went. Now, how many of you... That might have been a different story, but that doesn't sound very willing to go to me. It's because God caused him to go. She gave him the glory. She gave God the glory for everything. Listen, when you big bad self and you lead and all kinds of great things happen, the worst, you know, how many of you watch what not to wear on the discovery or what is it called? The learning channel? The Yeah. Nora looked at Jack and said, so, um, I'm just dying. This is so great, Jack. I just, you're not going to get the mic the rest of the evening. I'll take the batteries out. Um, but you want to really know what not to wear. Don't wear glory because it always makes your rear look big. How many of you know that? Don't ever mess with that. 
because you never look good wearing that. The most horrific, dehumanizing thing that can ever happen to someone. So when they say yes to God and then they try to somehow wear the glory, it's just unbecoming for any human, for any human. And the last thing that I think is profound is she gave others the credit. Um, biggest lesson to learn in leadership. Listen to what she said about Jael. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. Do you know what time frame Deborah gave this series of events? She called them the days of Jael, not the days of Deborah. Do you know in the book of Hebrews, when it refers back to this battle, you know who it gives the credit to? Barak. Barak is in the hall of faith. You know why? All through the fifth chapter, she's praising everyone but herself. Now, this is a hard lesson to learn, but listen carefully. Deborah wasn't just humble, she was accurate. She did not do anything but ride out on a horse and sit there. It was those men that gave their lives and risked their lives. In fact, remember when it says, when Barak says, yeah, I'm not going to go unless you go. And she goes, well, the glory's going to go to a woman. She wasn't talking about herself. She was talking about J.L. J.L. got all of the glory of the victory because she killed the general. And in battle, you always know in those days, if that one wasn't killed, you did not win because they would rise again and hunt you down some other day. Now, as a leader, how are you going to do when others bigger, badder, and greater than you come along? Are you going to lock arms with them? Are you going to be able to be like Paul was or Barnabas was when Paul took over and just disappear? Not from the kingdom. But you see, when you say yes to leading, many times leaders come out of the woodwork, and this is where Christians get bitter. I led that. And this, who do they think they are? Oh, Deborah could have done that. Imagine in heaven, Barak getting the credit in the book of Hebrews. And Barak was a faithless man. But because she said yes, he got his faith back because he sang the song with her. And if, if he was a rapper, he would have said this. Oh, yeah, you big bad, and so be your God. He big bad. I believe in him now. Something to that version. <laughs> I know you're going, no, that was terrible. I know. 
I know. But I don't do rap. I just do preach. And so this is the challenge I'm going to leave you with. Um, When Jesus looked at Jerusalem and cried, he looked down at Jerusalem and he said, the wheel, the, 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 the fields are widened to harvest. And he said, I pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. God has always and only had one answer to every society. And it's to find someone that would say yes, a laborer. And where you're at as a church, you've got to catalyze about 20 more leaders, 30 more leaders. What are they going to look like? I have no idea. But I do know this. There'll be people that will say yes. And there'll be people that believe. And there'll be people that catalyze something. Because throughout church history... God has always used individuals to catalyze things. And it's where we find everyone saying no, that the lights are turned out on a culture. And Abilene is dark. And I want you to know how dark Abilene is. It's impossibly dark, just like Franklin, where I live. It is impossible. Everything out there is essentially 10,000 unarmed men and women in here attacking something out there that is impossible to really win. But as long as you have in your soul the reality of how dark it is out there, you will never say ever that you don't know if Abilene needs Grace Point. You will never say that we don't need laborers. You will never say that we don't need people that will say yes to him. Because it's not so much about filling up these pews with children of light as much as it is expunging from that community the darkness. And everywhere in the world, those two are synonymous. Churches full Regardless of what we talk about, you know, you don't have to be a Christian. You know, you don't, you know, it's like if you're in a garage, you're not a car. And if you don't, church, listen, throughout all of world history, community coming together to worship God is diametrically tied to the spiritual health of the cities that lie around. Walk through Europe. And so I leave you with this. That is impossible. Everything out there, it's impossible. It's just going to take people that say yes and believe. I want to pray. Jesus, thank you for this team. Thank you for many men and women that say yes. And Jesus, we're asking you, as you stood and looked at Jerusalem, you knew the darkness and you knew what it would take, laborers, leaders, 
So Jesus, I'm praying that we would drive a tent peg into this day. In a year, we would be able to look back and see an army of people that would say yes. May you use every person in this room as a catalyst for leadership in this spiritual family. And God, you get all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.